Chapter 10 Sewell on the Go The year 2012 was a momentous one. For years I had dreaded its arrival as the date when I would turn 60. And here it was. Arrived. Shit. It was a nice birthday party in our garden room at Parklands though. Surrounded by friends and the few family members I still had anything to do with. No change there. But I did have a busker come to entertain us. Including doing a duet with me on the song called I've Been Left on the Shelf that I composed for my sister over four decades earlier. I do apologise to those who were there to hear it. The Olympic Games in London were wonderful. The producer of the staggeringly successful and innovative ceremonies, that is, opening, closing, torch relay, etc., was a guy I would get to know, to both my expense and benefit, in Hull, a few short years later. Martin Green was a real leader, and charisma on a stick, who was, more than anybody else, responsible for the success of Hull as UK City of Culture in 2017. He persuaded me to support the huge event by Sewell becoming a major partner and being one of the first to commit. It was a lot of money for us, but we had made a decent living from Hull for over 140 years and this was to be its special year. I had given up on the contemporary music scene by now, but was still passionate about football. Hull City appeared in an FA Cup final at Wembley or on the global stage as part of the English Premier League. Patrick and I glimpsed their familiar black and amber strip on small TVs thanks to the satellite dishes on huts and hovels in such faraway places as the Mekong Delta in Vietnam and the Roman Lyceum Way in Turkey as we biked and hiked through trips of a lifetime. In a monastery on the Cambodian border, I offered a Buddhist priest a swap, my lycra and cycle helmet, for his golden orange robe. He declined gracefully, but it reinforced my conviction that his religion and beliefs were some of the nicer ones on the planet. We visited the killing fields of those charming folk that wear the Khmer Rouge, and experienced the conditions that young American servicemen, average age 19, had to endure as they tried to suppress a brave and fearsome enemy that came out of a rabbit warren of underground tunnels during the Vietnam War. Man's inhumanity to man has never ceased to amaze and revolt me throughout my life. More mundanely, but very important to us at Sewell Group, the small sideline retail operation run from a brick box in Sutton in the 80s had become UK Forecourt Retailer of the Year in 2009 a staggering achievement that I want to examine properly in this chapter. Our retail arm was now about to change its principal petrol supplier from Total to BP, and maybe even more importantly, rebrand our operation as Sewell on the Go, with the emphasis on providing a quality product range and excellent customer service in an ever-changing and fast-moving world. The colour green made its first appearance in our brand mark and Smart U uniforms, prophetic as to the way the world needed to go in the new decade and beyond. The internet and the likes of Amazon were changing shopping habits and decimating the high street, but we saw space for superior convenience shopping on the hoof and a reassuring local presence 24-7-365 in the communities we served. I saw synergy with the estate side of the business for the group in that we are always there for the communities we serve. For 140 years on the construction side and the continuum of all the development deals over the past 20 years.
Bob C.J. had retired in the late noughties after a decade of sterling service. Latterly, he'd even managed a care home for us as he was mischievously considered to be the nearest in age to that of the business customer base as we tried to rescue it when the home in Sutton fell into difficulty whilst Doug Sewell was the landlord. Care of the elderly was, we knew, an exponentially growing market and therefore we decided not only to step in to help the residents and staff but to see if this could possibly be another Sewell business. We found the answer to be an emphatic no. Income per resident from the state did not come anywhere near meeting the cost of looking after our staff so that they could look after the residents. It seemed like a model that could just not work, so we got out as soon as we could. Developments in the care of the elderly over subsequent years proved our judgement to be tragically correct. Bob had handed the strategic leadership reins of the petrol retail business over to Patrick. His son David becoming operations director to Patrick's managing director, both reporting to me as chair. Dennis was by now in the process of departing and Patrick assumed his 50% shareholding. Dennis had understandably lost empathy with the retail side of our business when none of his three children showed the real interest necessary to assume a significant role. It was a shame that our long retail journey together ended as it did, but that's life and families I guess and his departure was actually a shot in the arm for the new soul on the go. Dennis believed that our business model in retail no longer worked, and I challenged Patrick to prove him wrong, or we would have to sell. What happened now is of course history, and it enabled me to implement something that I'd believed in for a long time, employee share ownership. I had been impressed for years by the success of my good friend David Kilburn, and how he had grown his creation, MKM Building Supplies, from one unit in Scarborough following his redundancy from Highcross at the age of 50, to the most successful, fastest growing builders merchants in the country. His secret was to create shareholders of all his individual branch managers, who bought in at 25% stake of their particular branch, and therefore thought and acted like a shareholder rather than just a manager. They hence became concerned about the value of the business rather than just its profitability and their salary and bonuses. This motivation made them drive us for change and fuel the exponential growth of his building supplies business. I always loved the John Lewis model of every employee having a share, but in thinking through the complications this would bring at Sewell Group, I confined my aspirations to the most senior staff only. Who knows where the next generation might take this in the future, but I was just happy to make a start at this late stage of my career. The start in retail was to offer the current senior team the opportunity to become shareholders, and our two young female stars were passionate about taking up the offer. I have found that to work, prospective shareholders need to be more than just interested. This needs to be about much more than money and a return on investment. It needs to be about ownership of a career and bringing the company's decisions within your influence. Alex Hornby had come in from our auditors PwC and although she took a little time to settle into the commercial world as an accountant, she was an obvious cultural fit in all other aspects from the outset. As she morphed from Miss Hornby to Mrs Mortimer and became the mother of two kids, she became a driving force in Sewell on the Go 
and I was delighted when she was enthusiastic about being a true stakeholder. She was ably supported and mentored through it all by a lovely man called Peter Johnson. Pete had been last man standing as Jackson's, the whole convenience store retailer, sold out to Sainsbury's and he managed the transition for them. He then came to us on a part-time basis to help with our systems and add a bit of experience to our accounts function. But Peter became much more. He became a symbol of all that is good about Sewell on the go and added that vital ingredient of experience. The vision of the very bald, distinguished Peter in his ceremonial initiation baseball cap with outrageous blonde wig on his first National Association of Convenience Stores, NAC's trip to Chicago will live forever in my memory. It is traditional on that trip to the USA that I provide each Sewell delegate with a cap with appropriate name or comment bespoke to them on it as they take the oath of what goes on at NAC's stays at NAC's as it is placed on their head. The thing being that everybody else can see your signature but you for the evening unless you are Dave CJ of course who would go to any lengths to have a peek before he got back to his room. In all the years of this silly ritual Peter's was by far the best and I can never help but chuckle when I think of it. Catherine Batch started as a young sales assistant during our ill-fated attempt to establish ourselves in her home village of Swanland, where she'd had a tough upbringing with no mother and poor health. Through hard work and determination, she rose quickly and assuredly through the ranks to be sales director in what became a nationally recognised example of social mobility, showcased by the former cabinet minister, Justin Greening MP, and their insights report on the Sewell Group, called Good to Grow, published in 2019. We are very proud of Alex and Catherine, and I sometimes smile knowingly when being harangued in forums such as the Humble Ep about diversity and the need for women to have equality of opportunity in the business world. Because of my age and gender, I am often wrongly seen as one of those unconscious misogynists. You need to live with a hull accent like mine to know about unconscious bias, I once told my PC inquisitors. The fact is that these two exceptional young women have made it to the top at Sewell Group based on the only true criteria, talent, passion and hard work, not gender, quotas or diversity training for people like me. Retail site number 13 was a long time coming, over 10 years in fact which seems counterintuitive to a vibrant business and its ambitious talent pipeline, but there were good reasons for the apparent inertia. Firstly, we wanted all of our sites to be good ones in the right locations, rather than having a portfolio for the sake of it, so we were discerning and not just focused on growth for growth's sake. We got close to acquiring other sites, but never quite made it. Secondly, we had embarked on a remodelling and refurbishment programme to ensure we optimised the estate we had and spent our capital budget wisely. This involved a complete knockdown and rebuild of the shop at Ferriby, now called Hull West, and a complete rebuild of the full site at South Cave to produce what was designated the best forecourt and convenience store in the UK 
at the Forecourt Awards in 2016. East Hull did not miss out, with a shop rebuild at Maybury and refurbishment and extension at Sutton, characterised by a superb launch film with rugby league legends Jamie Peacock, Ben Kakane and Gareth Ellis flipping the ball around the forecourt and shop to the amazement of customers like boxer Tommy Coyle and our staff watching on. Rugby league legends in a legendary store with legendary customer service, I recall the caption saying at the end of the film. Hull FC's Gareth Ellis pinching the oval ball from the Hull Kingston Rovers legends in their East Hull Heartland and jumping in his car to drive and touch down in our latest and 13th outlet over the river at Dunswell, made for a brilliant launch. Acquiring this new outlet had, incidentally, come about through a relationship. Graham Kennedy was a charming, proud, middle-aged Scot with round shoulders and a ready wit. His lovely Celtic lilt had him almost singing rather than speaking, and his thoughts were usually more alternative than conventional. He was one of Patrick's contacts in the Hazelwood group of regional retailers who met at the castle of the same name to talk about matters of mutual concern and interest. Graham was a rather unusual petrol retailer who had a business he called Inner Space Stations in York, and Patrick was very taken with his style and panache. Unfortunately, two of his four children had been born with the debilitating disease, Friedrich's ataxia, and Graham chose to sell some of his assets to provide for their lifelong care. He also organised an annual fundraiser called the Big Bad Bike Ride, where every September more than 100 mad cyclists would be challenged by a 100km ride in different difficult locations. Over the years, our funky attire has had the Sewell team proudly branded as being Border Raiders in Peebles, Highland Warriors in Glencoe, and the usual suspects for the torture that was the ride in Snowdonia. I remember a surfeit of Tom Jones in the minibus on the way down. This put me off the Welsh crooner and his green green grass of home for life. My first ride was in the Howardian Hills of North Yorkshire from Castle Howard itself. This was the only time we didn't stop overnight due to its proximity to home and we gathered in the car park to get changed in our cars. Knowing very little about cycling, I obviously decided to give the team talk on how the Sewell contingent would go about the challenge. Keep together in our peloton, win together, lose together, rotate the lead to share the work against the wind, etc. Then no more than a mile in, with the riders still pretty much bunched, there was a spat as it is called in cycling circles. This is an accident that has the knock-on effect of bringing down a number of riders, perhaps six or so here, with tangled bodies and machines, arms and legs, dented egos and lost dignity. I was thankfully well placed to navigate through the carnage and came out onto an open road, but then a smart-looking fit girl on a slick road bike shot past me and I had no alternative but to give chase in hot pursuit. My trusty mountain bike was great for hills and tracks, but a smooth open road was a challenge against a road bike and I had to settle for keeping up until the refreshment stop, where Honour was satisfied. The young lady looked down her nose disdainfully at me, swigged nonchalant from her designer water bottle 
and was off up the road again in a flash. The next disapproving look came not too far away from one of the Sewell team arriving at the stop. This one also looked like a proper cyclist with his thin frame and wiry muscle legs. Tony Leaning is Bob Craven Jones son-in-law and was our total oil company rep who had agreed to guess for us on the ride. What happened to the teamwork in the team talk, Paul? He inquired. Sorry, I replied sheepishly. The reason I rode off has just ridden off. We continued the ride together, more in the spirit of the original strategy, but it was not without incident as we hit a sharp downhill right-hand bend. Even the track tyres of my mountain bike could not deal with the wet leaves on the road. My wheels disappeared underneath me and I slid into Tony, ensuring the same happened to him. We ended up in our very own spat, but this time with only four arms, four legs, four wheels and two heads involved and intertwined. We got up gingerly and checked no one was watching deep in the Yorkshire countryside. After straightening handlebars etc, we went on our way, finishing the course with a steep climb up to the castle and a lovely welcoming group, complete with medals and certificates that were always a feature of this impressive event. I can attest however, that those who deem it clever not to wear head protection whilst on two wheels are real dicks for brains. The events on this very first ride did not put me off. In fact, they increased my desire to take part every year. Biking was good exercise for me with my dodgy footballer's knees, which prevent me doing any weight-bearing stuff like running. We did not see Tony and his biker's legs again though. The subsequent annual Big Bad Bike Ride weekends away started on the Friday evening with a proper full briefing on the route, location of bum stops, and marshalling arrangements etc before an early-ish night which was unfortunately not free from the usual unoriginal practical jerks. On the Saturday morning we would be sent on our way by some incompetent bumptious Scottish piper strangling his tartan bag of wind and our peloton impressively setting off from the high street of whichever town we happened to be in. There was a sense of community and common purpose that I had rarely seen maybe because I've never run a marathon, and Graham raised over £1 million for the charity over a decade of peddling, fitness and fun. The Queen consequently honoured him with an MBE for his efforts, and it was richly deserved. We kept in touch, and Graham even came to Knacks with us on one occasion. This paid dividends, because when he wanted to dispose of his site in Dunswell, between Hull and Beverley, we had first refusal. There was the usual challenge of integrating existing staff into our culture and there were the inevitable departures. The values, attitudes and behaviour of our people are absolutely fundamental to our brand. This is more important than the store concept, new colours, logos etc. Yet I still see so much investment in infrastructure without attendant care to the behaviour of the people who will inhabit and work within. Hashtag leadership is the solution. I always maintain that people do business with people and the Dunswell deal with Graham was yet another example. Alongside being a great place to work so that yours can be a great company to deal with and winning that war for talent, which is now as competitive as the war for customers, 
you also need the best and most appropriate technology platform for your talent to work on and for your customers and suppliers to engage with you. It is imperative to invest in technology as much as in infrastructure and people. They all go hand in hand, so you play favourites at the peril of your business. Dennis was always the one for technology in the future, while we're in partnership together. In fact, we said that if we had the DeLorean time machine as a company car, he would have turned the clock to the future, and I would have turned it to the past. That's not quite true, but as Dave Leadham once said, Dennis would always want the new stuff out, and want to be the first down his street to have it. A fundamental part of IT in our company over the past 30 years of incredible change is a lad who started as an apprentice bricklayer with us. His name is Glenn Poskett, or Poschetti, as he was known as a youngster, such were his swarthy Mediterranean good looks. Even in the lobby of the Cavendish Square sheltered housing projects, set up under Cavern, he had a legion of swooning schoolgirls waiting outside for him to appear. He would be working his brick measure and therefore his bonus out on a programme he had created for his little basic Sinclair computer. It was obvious by both the quantum of his measure and the way he worked it out that he was designed for a career in technology rather than bricklaying. He went into site management as a trainee, then into estimating to be Kevin Merrill's junior, then assistant, before finally finding his true niche as our head of technology. This is a role he has carried out with distinction for as long as the role has existed. He has ultimately always had my absolute trust whenever there have been any doubts about his judgement or policies. Glenn personifies the mantra, keep on searching for what you are great at, then do it. And if anybody's encouraged me to write this book over the years, it's been him. He introduced its forerunner with me in the 90s, the Sewell Book of Little Business Lessons, and I do thank him for his encouragement and support. The evening of the 10th of October 2016 was a momentous one at the London Hilton on Park Lane. I had not been present to our previous appearance at the prestigious Forecourt Trader Awards in 2009, so I was pleased to be travelling down with the team on Hull Trains and hear their stories of the judges' visits to our stores and what was said about their countrywide tour that spanned from John O'Groats in Scotland to Land's End in Cornwall. The team surmised that the top award would be out of our reach this time, with us having won it just half a dozen years earlier, and there being such a huge amount of nationwide competition and alternatives available to the judges. I loved the excitement and buzz that a visit to the capital for an evening like this created among our people. I'd shared it with many of them before in events such as the Sunday Times 100 Best Companies to Work For celebratory evening. I mused on what Patrick has said about it being the first time in London for many of our staff and even a debut out of Hull for others. At Sewell Group, it is so important that special events are not the exclusive domain of directors, but that the limelight be cast upon those at the grassroots of the business. It's choosing who to take that's always the problem. When setting my dinner suit out in the hotel bedroom, I discovered that I had no black socks with me, so felt it necessary to go out round the corner down Oxford Street to see if I could buy a pair. The first store I came across was the biggest Primark I had ever seen, and I nipped in to get a value pack of black socks, plus a selfie of me in the store. 
I used this to convince the team that I did all my shopping in Primark, and at least Louise believed me. I was going to tweet this, but was wisely persuaded not to. Twitter is brilliant for communicating, and particularly for letting people see your more personal side, but as we all know, it can cause problems, particularly if you're me at Paulie Sewell. We gathered for the drinks reception, and I could tell there were lots of nerves, as well as anticipation, in the cavernous Hilton ballroom. The best of British on parade in London was the description in the trade press. The spectacular evening was hosted by the ebullient all-round entertainer Brian Connolly, who joked, sang and danced his way into the hearts of a lively audience as he announced the winners on the night. The reporter continued, and she was not exaggerating. What happened next was unprecedented in my experience of attending many awards evenings, where a politically correct sharing out of honours is the way it must be. Not here. Mr Connolly commenced the business side of the evening. Best community engagement. If there's anybody better at this than us, I want to see them, I thought. There wasn't. And the winner is Carl Screeton, Sewell on the Go, Maybury, Hull. I was so pleased for this nice shy lad from Holderness and it was fantastic to see him on a big stage in London. It was also fantastic to see all of the work we do in the community recognised. Next up, Best Customer Service. For me, this one is the Blue Ribbon Award as far as the retail sector is concerned. And the winner is Sarah Spafford, Sewell on the Go, South Cave. We've gone and won that one too. Well done, Sarah. Best Car Care Outlet. Time for somebody else, I thought. They can have this one. But no. The winner is... Louise Alexander, Sewell on the Go, Hull West. Our uncut diamond Lou, who would come through the ranks like Cal. Go pick it up, Gail. Best drinks outlet. Our host now had no alternative but to start taking the piss, and he was good at it. The winner here will come as a real surprise if you come from Hull. Sarah Spafford, Sewell on the Go, South Cave. By this time, I was praying that the next one would not be us, and thank God it wasn't. It could have turned into a farce. But the big awards were to come. They surely have to share things out, I thought. Not likely. Best UK at Forecourt. Sewell on the go, South Cave. I get with this. It is rather special, if I say so myself. UK Forecourt Trader of the Year. This now appeared inevitable, and our host said so. This time not so much with sarcasm, but in reflective awe. I quote from the forecourt trader. Patrick Sewell and his team at Sewell on the Go were triumphant overall victors at the glorious celebration of the best of British fuel retailers held at the London Hilton on Park Lane in front of a raucous crowd. At the end of the evening, the chair of the judges panel came over to our table and I was introduced to her. I expressed an appropriately gracious degree of embarrassment, but she would have none of it. The fact is, it wasn't even close. You were so far ahead of the competition, that was the only thing that was embarrassing. So how did it happen? 
How could a result like this on an evening like this come about? How did a little retailer from Little Old Hull in the frozen north of England morph from that four-pump brick box outlet in Sutton to the staggering triumph in Park Lane that night? Firstly, our retail guys find who does what we do the best in the world and we go and see it. I ask all our businesses to contemplate this unashamed nicking then personalisation of ideas, but the retailers and their thirst for travel do it best. These comparison exercises can be called benchmarking, but it is much more than that. It is the pursuit of world class by seeing and hanging around with the best on the planet. The most consistent venue, the one which is now almost a tradition for us to visit, is the United States and its National Association of Convenience Stores Annual Convention, or NACS. This is one of the biggest conferences in the world at over 20,000 delegates, and there are only three cities in the US capable of staging it, Chicago, Atlanta, and Las Vegas. Over the past 20 years, we have taken around six to eight different Sewell staff on the four-day trip. They are not always retailers, but senior estates and PST guys who might benefit from the overall experience of learning and having some fun as a reward for their hard work and achievements. There is a huge expo with everything from car washes to chewing gum, dozens of breakout sessions for 12 to 250 people on a full range of business topics, both general and specialist, plus two general sessions to open and close the events. It is at these events that we have to stand with right hand on heart to partake in the patriotic rendition of the Stars and Stripes, before listening to such big-hitting headline speakers as George W. Bush, Bill Clinton, Lance Armstrong and even Captain Kirk from Star Trek in the shape of actor William Shatner. Outside of the formal programme, there are fringe events and dinners in a hectic, fun, hard-working and productive few days. In Las Vegas, there are, of course, the shows. The cohort we took to see Tom Jones in his lair at the MGM Grand included Graham Atkins, not at all a fan of the Welshman, evidently, or one of the big Del Boy-style cocktails that were as weak as piss, in his opinion. They were so big that Curly from Hornsey had to make an effort to look around them to see the Tomster gyrating on stage, and so weak that he swigged his down and immediately demanded another. The effect at the end of the show was not only Cayley joining the Tom Jones fan club, but when trying to leave the theatre, he was the only person I have ever seen to be totally and seriously pissed, but from the knees down only. He was coherent in speech and upper body function, but when he tried to move, it was as if his feet were super glued to the aisle floor, and his tibia and fibula were made of rubber. We got him back to the hotel as he tortured us with an awful rendition of the green green bloody grass of home. One night, after checking in late at the spectacular Venetian hotel, the reception staff were having room allocation issues, and I was glad to have a stunning suite on two levels looking down onto the famous Vegas Strip. It had more TVs than curries, and everything was electronically controlled, lighting, curtains, the lot. While I was unpacking and admiring the splendour of my abode, Dave C.J., who I knew was behind me in the queue, called, and I thought it would be about going for a sneaky late beer, 
but it was to inquire about my room. What's yours like? Shabby, I replied deviously. Have you got a mini cinema? No, just lots of tellies, I responded. I've got a pool, he added furtively. And a gym. I'm sat on the exercise bank now. Piss off. No, straight up. Don't know what's going on. I don't even like gyms. Neither did he like being kept awake by the guy next door on his high roller floor with two hookers and a marching band. This compensated me somewhat, as did Dave Leadham's review of the $6 billion hotel with its stunning St. Mark's Square, gondolas and false sky overarching art treasures and fountains as a bit tacky. Another year we got to see Elton John and the million dollar piano at Caesar's Palace and I insisted on us all wearing big brash Elton glasses as props for the evening. This created quite a stir as we were mini English celebrities both in the bar beforehand and during the show as we danced away but it was after the show as we made our way out that it all came to a head. As the crowd thronged down the corridors to the exit we were identified and headed into a corner by two very large bouncers who asked who was in charge of our eccentric group. Nobody owned up, so they asked again, and when everybody else took a sheepish step backwards, I thought I'd better speak up. I guess that would be me, I said hesitantly. Well, these are for you from Nigel, one of them said, handing me a pair of drumsticks signed by Nigel Olsen, the legendary drummer of Elton John's band. He had evidently appreciated our silly bespectacled antics from the stage. Eat your hearts out, you lily-livered gits, I said. The sticks are still on my cabinet at home. My boyhood lesson of never admit to nout in tatters. Just like in football, the teams that play together stay together, and I believe that celebrating success, gained through hard work, unashamedly, is the thing to do. It is in my book anyway. And this is my book. On a serious note, I was very taken at Knacks one year with the founder of the high-end ethical organic Whole Foods Market, a slim, gentle soul called John Mackey. The convenience retailers teased him, calling his stores Whole Paycheck, such was the Whole Foods pricing structure. But I thought it showed unjustified resentment, given that they just sold unhealthy low-level crap thinking it was all their customers wanted. Mackey explained his brand of conscious capitalism. He co-wrote a book of the same name, and I really got it in a way that explained my philosophy back to me. He contended that the only thing that has lifted the world out of poverty and servitude over the past 300 years is capitalism, i.e. the free exchange of goods for mutual benefit and that the communism that I observed and struggled with as a young man was dead, killed off by the spread of knowledge enabled by Tim Berners-Lee's World Wide Web, and the end of the Cold War characterised by the fall of the Berlin Wall, the tyrannical barrier I had observed as a teenager, the wall that was allowed to be ripped down without conflict by reforming Russian leader Mikhail Gorbachev, who I would witness explaining this at the YIBC in Harrogate all those years later. I would have dinner with that same Tim Berners-Lee at Harewood House, outside Leeds, also courtesy of the YBC. Strange man that he was. 
I did think, while listening to Mackie on that October day in the United States, what an incredibly lucky and privileged fruiterous son from Hull I was. And consequently, I have always felt that this carried with it the responsibility to give something back in order to help the less fortunate and privileged in society. That if, like Hull Foods, a business could have a higher purpose above making money to give a return to shareholders, this must be around making people's life better in some way. This would then make the whole thing worthwhile and emotionally attractive, producing a virtuous and brand-enhancing upward spiral. Sounds pretentious bollocks, does it not? I'm sure my dad and our Ronnie would have thought so. After a number of years of attending this wonderful event, I surprisingly got to appear at it. It was being held in Atlanta that year, 2010, and somebody got to know that we were in the top 10 of the Sunday Times 100 best companies to work for in the UK at the time, and asked Patrick if he would do one of the breakout sessions. He declined, but he said he knew somebody who might. Our PR at the time was being handled by a lovely guy called Simon Taylor. As a former comms lead for both Railtrack and the East Rand of Yorkshire Council, he taught me much about the importance of strategic communications. On this particular afternoon, however, we arranged a conference call with the Americans to prepare for my appearance at NAX in Atlanta the next month. Simon was nervous as he thought my style and humour might not be exportable or translate too well with us being divided by a common language. I told him with a glint in my eye that all would be fine. At the appointed time the call came through on the central desk speaker from our American cousins. How are y'all in the good old UK? they asked. Just some details of your upcoming breakout session at NAX called What's It Like to Be a Top Place to Work? You are representing the UK and we're putting you up against Quick Trip, our highest ranked Fortune 500 company in the convenience sector. Simon and I exchanged bemused looks. Putting us up against Quick Trip, I sought confirmation. Yep, you've got 25 minutes, they got 25 minutes, and then there's 10 minutes from the audience. Simon looked concerned, and I thought we'd better push back. Oh, like a well series, I said. You Americans are so competitive. We'll give it a go. The briefing continued to its conclusion and the request for any questions, whereby I responded in the affirmative. Yes, just one, I said, feeling Simon's fixed stare upon me. What am I to do with my animals? Simon's face looked as if he'd got trapped wind. Excuse me, sir, came the reply from across the Atlantic. I need somewhere for the animals, I reiterated. I don't use PowerPoint, but I do use animals in my presentation, I clarified. Pardon, sir? I'll get them to the convention centre, but do you have anywhere for them there? Simon was now animated, shaking his head and motioning for me to stop. This is most irregular, sir. I know. I'm joking. There was then a short silence before the curt reply. Very funny, sir. Simon's contention that my humour would not export was spot on. Did this mean that I should not recount the half a lettuce story in Atlanta with its knobhead American? What do you think? We were at the convention centre in Atlanta and it was the day of my presentational joust with Quick Trip.
who were represented by a tall, blonde, ice maiden from HR. Our presentations were not going to be alike. I avoided her at the sound check by going into the small auditorium early and engaging the big, black, audio-visual guy who looked as if he might die of terminal boredom. We checked that my presentation ran okay, then I asked him about my half a story with this knobhead American. I was beginning to lose my bottle, as he advised me, where in the Bible Belt of the South, sir, I would keep all body references above the waist. He said this without a smile or a hint of humour. I took his advice and the tourist became an idiot American. I wondered how to describe the multidisciplined business that was the Sewell Group and settled upon a comparison with the brand they might know. We are like a mini mini virgin but based in Yorkshire in the northeast of England I said. Different operations like construction, facilities management, investment and petrol retail of course all under one umbrella brand. Richard Branson's Virgin business are united by a common idea of great customer service delivered with a glint in the eye sense of fun. Sewell Group is about being there for our community, serving it from within, buying hiring locally and giving something back. Things went well and quick trip seemed very good, if a bit corporate and lacking in our personality and this was reinforced in the question and answer session. The biggest and best question was however reserved for after the session closed when this stout old guy came up and introduced himself telling me he enjoyed the story but then asking so what are you famous for? There must have been a quizzical look on my face so he thought he'd better expand. I'm famous statewide in Kentucky for my hot dogs. Hot dogs on the go. People drive miles for them. Make detours for them. But I don't get what you're famous for. Good question. A very good question that you must be able to answer if you want a good business brand. I was presenting on, and so we would become famous for, being in the top 10 of the Sunday Times best companies to work for in the UK. But realised that this is only an enabler to being famous for goods and services to the point where people would travel and make detours for them. I consequently decided that after three years in the Sunday Times listing, it was time to give it a rest and concentrate on the goods and services rather than the enabler. We also got to visit and engage with a truly wacky but hugely successful American company called Zappos.com. Patrick had heard of them through his retail network and now read up on them and agreed they were certainly different. Tony Shea is the son of Taiwanese immigrants who grew up in San Francisco and was a millionaire at 25 when he sold his company Link Exchange to Microsoft for more than $250 million when it had ceased to be fun for him anymore. He was then part of the original American youth rave scene when it was about a sense of community rather than drugs and this obviously had a profound effect on his values and his approach to building a culture. At the turn of the millennium he was asked to invest in an online retail shoe company which he did and hence became CEO of Zappos.com. Nine years later he sold it to Amazon for 1.2 billion dollars 
but it was their way of doing business and their culture that interested me, far beyond the impressive numbers. In his book Delivering Happiness, he made it plain that the company was more about customer satisfaction than selling shoes online. A lot of his ideas were counterintuitive to making money, but make money he did, and lots of it, through being personal and personable, making the staff and customers really happy, no matter what. They made kindness a business strategy, and it struck a chord with me, as it sort of articulated what I had felt about business for a long time. The combination of John Mackey and Tony Shea made it all make sense, and business sense at that. I was relieved, gratified and emboldened as I traced a thread of generosity from my dad to what I had always tried to do at Sewell with initiatives such as the Profit Blitzing Fibroscope at Castle Hill Hospital to being a major partner of Hull City of Culture 2017, right through to having a sense of vindication from these two highly successful Americans, Tony Shea and John Mackey. I had said at Sewell from the beginning that we had to have an abundance mentality where you believe that there is enough to go around rather than the normal business scarcity mentality which makes you feel you need to fight for stuff. It was during one of our training initiatives called Boot Camp that I asked a group of a dozen or so young people to compare and contrast two different types of companies. First, the British retail behemoth Tesco who were flying high at that time with their iconic CEO Terry Leahy, who I had just hosted and dined with at the Yorkshire International Business Convention. Then I wanted them to compare this British corporate giant with the wacky American bunch that was Apos.com. Their findings were interesting, if obvious, but not as much as their modus operandi, for our brave bunch of proactive youngsters had engaged directly by Skype with the most senior managerial level at Zappos, who gave them the time of day, bless them. What interested me above all was to find that they had moved their base to Las Vegas, where the next convention was to be held the next year, making a potential visit to go and see them and engage directly too good an opportunity to miss. The reception at Zappos.com sets the tone, whereby if you are wearing a tie, the receptionist comes out from behind the desk with the glint in the eye and scissors in hand to unceremoniously cut it off and pin it up amongst the colourful wall display of hundreds of other ties that have suffered the same fate. This was just the start of the lunacy, or is it genius? The call centre had cubicles, each with PC and phone as you would expect, but that was where the similarity to other facilities ended. Bloons, party hats, party poppers and streamers abounded, with working areas personalised by much more than pictures of the family. Mannequins, inflatable animals, paddling pools filled with plastic balls, model aeroplanes hanging from the ceiling, you name it, it was there. There was a strategically placed throne on a red velvet carpet, with crown and scepter ready to recognise the latest superficially trivial achievement. Their massively important key core values as expressed in their culture book included being a little weird, and they truly were. They practiced what was called a holocracy, whereby even Tony Shea's workplace was an average everyday cubicle amongst his people, there being no swanky corner office for this billionaire owner. 
It was always going to be much more West Coast American than East Coast Yorkshire, but there were a couple of practices that I found most interesting. Their induction process, for instance, or onboarding as they termed it. This lasted two weeks and contained as much cultural material as technical, with a break after the first week where all candidates were offered a cheque for $2,000 to abort and cease the process if they so desired. This surprises a lot of people, but not me, for it tested candidates' motivations and recognise that it is a lot more expensive to allow an inappropriate influence into your culture. Or, as the Americans would put it, you are better off with a hole than an asshole, even if that hole costs you $2,000. We also discovered all visitors gathered in downtown Las Vegas to be collected by Zappos minibus and transported to head office on the outskirts of the city. This included participants in their recruitment process, who discovered their bus driver on the interview panel. He had, of course, been listening and observing their behaviour on the 40-minute trip. I love different in a world that's becoming increasingly samey. Much of what we experienced was not appropriate for Sewell Group, but I respected Tony Shear's insistence of adherence to the key core values and how then they shaped the culture and personality of his company. Above all, I loved his premise that business is a force for good and should deliver happiness along with its goods, services, careers and returns to stakeholders. Nice one, Tony. So Nax teaches you stuff as well as giving you a different perspective on your business from a distance whilst comparing it to the best in the world. The the Independent Retailer Owners Forum, IROF, does that but by hanging around with entrepreneurs running their own businesses just like us. Sewell on the Go had been in the top 50 indies, as it is called, for a few years and now joined this exclusive bunch that was organised by an industry guru called Scott and Anne. I knew Patrick had made us part of the group, but that's all I knew until I was invited to join IROF on one of their study trips. I had for years tried to avoid cramping Patrick's style with my presence at stuff like this but when I was told the venue that convention was quickly scrapped. The gathering was to be in Tokyo on Japan's main island of Honshu. I believe in going to see the best in the world in order to set your standards. We understood that as far as convenience retail is concerned this is found in the biggest city in the world populated by 50 million people but with big box retailers excluded by Japanese government statute. It would be ideal to see mass convenience shopping on the go. For me, there may have been the added dynamic of my dad's trials and tribulations with this nation in the early 1940s. Of course, I had come across the Japanese as camera-snapping tourists, but never in their own country. Tokyo is awesome with just about the population of the UK in one conurbation. The Japanese can seem a bit strange with their white masks and their manner, but their city is incredible. It is clean, apparently safe, apparently civilised and well-mannered. Theft from convenience retail does not exist, for they told us that it is not the Japanese way. Their island culture having remained isolated and globally unsullied until relatively recently in history. 
they just do things differently from the West. The first morning's gathering and introductions left me knowing nobody, but I introduced Patrick as my carer and said I had to go wherever he went. I'm not sure our Japanese host understood my humour, but what's new? I did notice that the Irish struggled with it too, which is a bit more worrying. Listening to who these IROF guys were and what they did, I was comforted and impressed. They were my type of people, not corporate professionals, but entrepreneur owners and practitioners with skin in the game. From one superb store in Ireland, to 60 in the Cotswolds, to 60 in East Anglia, we would go to see Japanese companies with 8,000 stores all across Asia. This was some difference, but they treated us gracefully, as if we had 80,000 stores in Europe. The main thing I picked up on this trip, apart from culture is everything of course, was the use of technology. The Japanese had nothing that we had not seen and didn't know of, but they just used it comprehensively and to good effect. The way they gather and use data is awesome and even frightening. We stopped off at Hong Kong on the way home and this was much more familiar as it was dirty and threatening, just like our beloved London. Scott has subsequently taken us to Singapore and Sydney. He also brought the group to see us at Sewell in Hull to look at how we do the people thing and interface with our community. As noted earlier, they say you become who you hang around with, so it's good to know this bunch and I hope that I can call the likes of Scott, Guy Warner, Tom Ennis from Dublin and Jonathan Jones from Soame, friends. So, if seeking world class, rubbing shoulders with it, learning and stealing from it is the one thing that has catapulted Sewell Retail from one poxy amateur store in Sutton to UK Forecourt Retailer of the Year, what are the others? Why did Sewell Homes, with all its initial advantages, fail and die as a house building business as its retail cousin succeeded big time? Here we shift from memoir to business book if that's okay. If not, skip this bit. Despite Sewell being builders with access to land, Sewell Homes failed. Why? One, we were house builders, not sellers, and we started to look at the marketing skills required in what to build, where and how to sell it far too late. Two, Having a long-term reputation for quality in building schools, health centres, social housing, etc., we over-specified and indulged our customers beyond what they could reasonably expect for the price. 3. We didn't look towards acquiring sites and land banking them. 4. We had no real industry professional practitioner with the necessary 10,000 hours of experience. 5. As a result of four, we didn't have the necessary knowledge and network. Six, as a result of four, we didn't build a bespoke team, but relied on available Sewell people to come in and learn on the job. Seven, passion was lacking, as it was everybody's sideline and nobody's main focus. Eight, we lacked leadership and accountability as a result. Nine, we were unlucky regarding the timing of peaks and troughs in the housing market. 10. Sewell Homes was cash hungry rather than cash generative 
and we were not set up for this business model. Sewell Retail succeeded as a corollary to much of the above, in no particular order and as some pointers for any successful business. 1. Leadership. It is the solution to most problems after all. First Bob, then Patrick, provided exactly what was needed. 2. Passion for the industry from that leadership is infectious. 3. Professional practitioners with their 10,000 hours, e.g. Dave C.J. and Pete Johnson, are essential. 4. Knowledge and networks emerge from all the above. 5. A simple compelling vision is necessary, such as Bob's dozen sites, then Patrick's world-class convenience offer on the go. 6. A point of difference to the main competition is provided by being local people, serving local people and keeping wealth in the community. Hashtag love local. 7. Generosity in giving something back through a host of initiatives of all shapes and sizes puts deposits in the bank of goodwill which can be withdrawn as and when needed, e.g. when we cock up. 8. Being a great place to work to enable us to be a great company to deal with. The Sunday Times 100 best companies to work for and all that. Being an enabler to compete in an ever intensifying war for talents. 9. Continual investment in the stores and their technology. 10. Outstanding annual business planning process where the strategy was agreed and then the detail concentrated upon, i.e. the little big things. 11. Visibility, involvement and engagement of senior staff on the shop floor. Senior people not getting locked in their comfortable offices. 12. Good internal communication from the annual Sewell Convention right through to the weekly huddles. 13. Eventually embracing and implementing individual performance agreements or personal business plans as they became known which would give true clarity and accountability in support of the business plan. 14. A decent reward regime which differentiates on individual performance. 15. An engaged and nurtured supply chain. 16. A talent pipeline of staff who can see and influence their career path. 17. Decent governance keeping the organisation healthy as decisions are made in the right place at the right time and assurance gained that all is as it should be. 18. Balance between the hardware of structure, systems, processes etc and the software of culture, relationships, morale, energy etc. 19. Balance between the heat that you pay to your customers, who are your reason for being, your people, who should be cared for and unleashed to serve, your performance, because it's a results game where the numbers have to be right, and your community, where the contribution and giving back should be appropriate and distinctive, e.g. the Sewell Compass, as can be seen in the second plate section. E.g. the Sewell Compass, which was nicked unashamedly from Terry Leahy and Tesco. 20. 
Know your marketplace, its shape and direction, its players and your competition, so that you can position yourself close to the customer and between them and the competition. That's where you sell from and this is the essence of marketing, whatever anybody else says or how they try to complicate it. It looks as though this has turned into my business philosophy 20, but I make no apologies and thank all the good people who have taught me and helped shape it. In short, a clear purpose with a simple compelling vision and leadership to attract the right people into the right culture. Here endeth the lesson. Amen.